let's say you're one of the 2 billion people in the world that can't open a bank account or even by law, if you're a woman, you can't open a bank account in like 50 countries, I think. Let's say that you're one of these people and you instead get on your computer and you start working with this DAO and you're starting to make money when you want to put that money to work. Well, in DeFi, you can do that. You don't have to ask any person in the world to give you the opportunity to do that. You can do that yourself. I think that's a big difference that people outside of the United States and parts of Europe maybe don't take as something that is that big of a groundbreaking achievement, but it is for a lot of people. And I think that we're going to see more and more of those types of things in the future. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. More and more startups are using Retool to focus their time on their core product. And that's exactly why they launched Retool for Startups. This is a program that gives early stage founders free access to a lot of the software needed for great internal tooling. And Retool has worked with thousands of startups. And the trend line they noticed was technical founders spending tons of time building internal tools. That means at this critical stage, these founders were distracted from their core product. The goal is simple, make it 10 times faster to build the admin panels, CRUD apps, and the dashboards most early stage teams need. And Retool has bundled together a year of free access to Retool with over $160,000 in partner discounts to save you money while building Retool apps with common integrations like AWS, MongoDB, Brex, and Segment. There is so much you could do with Retool. You can use these free credits to build tools that join product and billing data into a single customer view, tools that convert manual workflows into fully featured apps for your team, or tools that help non-technical teammates get access to your database to read and write data, analyze, and query. These are just a few examples. Learn more, apply, and join Lightning Demos at retool.com slash startups. Again, retool.com slash startups. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Join in on the hijinks in the JS Party channel of Changelog's community Slack. It's totally free. And follow us on Twitter to be notified of when we go live. We are at JS Party FM. Okay, it's party time, y'all. Hi everyone! We are so, so excited for today's episode. This is a hot topic, y'all, so everybody get your popcorn, get comfortable. We're gonna, we're gonna dive in pretty deep. We have a very, very special guest with us today, uh, Nadir Debit. Hello, Nadir, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I'm really excited for the convo today. Yeah, we're excited too. I should uh, say I'm probably going to turn off my Twitter mentions after this goes live. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. No, we'll keep it positive. With me today is uh, co-hosting is Jared. Hi, Jared. Hi. And you know what? I brought some sunglasses. I thought maybe I'd throw these on since this is such a cool topic. The future, oh. right? Nice. Oh my God, Jared, those glasses look amazing on you. <laughs> Thank you. I think you should just always wear them. You should be like those rappers that like wear sunglasses indoors. Just every episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looks good. Good luck. I'm sold. 
Yeah, good luck, good luck. So we've invited Nader today to talk about the decentralized future and Web3 and crypto and all the like buzzwords that kind of go into that space. Nader is really a great guest because he, like many of our listeners, is a web developer, has a web development background, and kind of really made a very intentional pivot into kind of Ethereum development over the past year, maybe, Nader? It's been a year now? Yeah, it was uh, six months ago. Yeah, six months, not even. All right. So with that said, Nader, why don't you give us uh, your backstory? So we don't have time to get into your full origin story. There's a great uh, yeah. changelog episode that Nader was on in 2008 that we'll link in the notes so you can learn more about Nader's background. But we're going to start at AWS. So you were director or lead or something at AWS, and then you were like, I'm done. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was at AWS for over three years, like almost three and a half years, and I was leading the developer relations team for front-end web and mobile, which is AWS has like partitioned different groups that work on things. So there's like the Alexa group, there's the serverless group, and I was on the front-end web and mobile. So we were kind of building out SDKs for web and mobile developers as well as tooling and stuff. So yeah, I was leading the developer relations team or developer advocacy team for the last year, uh, a little over a year. And before that, I was just a developer advocate for previous two years. And yeah, so I was there for a little over three years. I really, I would say, learned the most of any role I've ever had while I was at AWS. I made some really great connections and, and friends, and it was just a really good experience overall. I would not go back and, and change anything about it. But kind of like while b being there, I would say for the last year or so, I did become a little bit bored and just uninspired, I would say a little bit by my day-to-day -day work. And this was also during COVID, so it's kind of hard to tell exactly the, the root cause. And, and honestly, we're lucky to be able to even decide, hey, I'm bored, let me try something new. But that's kind of the way I felt. I wanted to try something new. So I started you know, just uh, keeping my eyes out for opportunities over the course of that year. I was interviewing, I was talking to people, I was reading and I was learning and I was just looking for the next thing that kind of sparked that original spark that I had when I first started becoming a developer. And really when I joined AWS, that I had that feeling when I was working on serverless stuff and I still like serverless stuff. It's really interesting to me, but it doesn't like make me want to wake up and be excited and happy for my day. It's kind of like looking for that thing. And I had a lot of really great opportunities that started coming around because of just being a developer for 10 years, you know, and, and having that experience, you start landing some good opportunities. And one of the areas that I started exploring was like crypto and Web3. I had some really great opportunities that were like senior and principal level within AWS and then outside of AWS that actually paid like twice as much as what I'm ultimately took in the Web3 space. But they weren't things that I was excited to go do, you know, so. No magic feeling, right? Yeah, no magic feeling. And, and, and you know, again, like how fortunate like was I to even be able to say something like that, right? So I recognize all that stuff, but I was looking for something, you know, the next thing to excite me. So I, I, I've been speculating in this as an investor in crypto since like 2015. So buying and selling, you know, Bitcoin back in the day uh, and then, you know, other things re more recently. And one of the ones that I looked into was something called the Graph Protocol. And it was um, the first time I kind of looked past the token as an investment and, and tried to understand what, why it was there and why people were, were buying it and using it. And when I started kind of looking into that project, the first thing I realized was that they were using GraphQL and that was kind of like a big part of it. And that was really the first 
big eye-opening moment for me as a developer when I started realizing that these tokens and these crypto economic protocols were actually there for something other than speculation. Because honestly, at that point, even six, seven months ago, I didn't understand how smart contracts work. I didn't understand anything past, you know, just the, uh, buying and selling. So I started diving into like why they use GraphQL. And that kind of took me down what, you know, a lot of people call this rabbit hole of the entire ecosystem and Web3 and all of the people, all of the communities, all of the projects and all of the stuff happening, conferences, all types of stuff. And I became really, really fascinated and I, ca- I became really excited and, and I wanted to continue doing research. So I started reading and I started buying books and really getting like I couldn't stop thinking about it. Like it was like one of those things like, oh, this is freaking cool. People are actually, the reason that this, these things have become popular isn't just because it's like another currency, but there's actually other stuff. And when you start like peeling back the layers and seeing all the stuff, it really spoke to me as an engineer because the problems that they were solving and the stuff that they were doing seemed so much more fun and interesting than anything I'd worked on really in my career ever. So, um, yeah, at that point, I did start like considering like, what if I wanted to make a move into this industry? But it wasn't really anything I took too seriously because because of a bunch, a bunch of different reasons. But one of those being it just seemed so risky to me to turn down like a half a million dollar type of uh, opportunity that I had on the table to maybe join an industry that I knew nothing about. And like I had z- zero experience. Like, why would anyone hire me anyway? And if I did, like, would I be successful? That's kind of where I was maybe uh, a couple of weeks before I ultimately tried to get into the role I'm in now. So that's kind of hopefully like, you know, an overview of how I decided to even consider this this area. Mm. You said they were solving problems that were more exciting. Can you give us some examples of what problems were being solved in this industry specifically? Yeah, so I mean, at AWS and, and really within the web community for the past few years, we were doing some really, really great stuff around improving the developer experience and improving the user experience uh, when you're in the area that I was in was like Jamstack and also you know mobile development. We seem to be solving kind of the same problems like over and over and over. So like we had WordPress as a CMS like 10, 15 years ago, whatever. The big rage at the time was like Jamstack and CMSs. So I felt like we're basically rebuilding a CMS over and over and over. And that was kind of like one of the really hot things that I felt like was cool and stuff, but it wasn't like revolutionary and it wasn't that huge of a deal. We were doing fun stuff and cool stuff, but it wasn't like anything that was like brand new. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like some of the stuff in, in the Web3 space that I'll, uh, that I'll talk about just a moment was kind of brand new. But like, yeah, I was just getting tired of like seeing and, and even creating myself like, oh, here's how you create a blog uh, using this stack. We've created like millions of, uh, of blog posts about how to create a blog. There's thousands of ways to do it. <laughs> it just wasn't that interesting to me, you know? So mm-hmm. um, that, I would say that's kind of the feeling that I was having around some of the stuff we were doing. Databases are cool, but like we're just rebuilding the same types of databases over and over. And, um, you know, people you really have to go into details to, to even understand the differences between this new SQL database versus the other dozen SQL databases that were already out there. And I think when I started looking into Web3 and crypto, I started seeing that that there were like a, a multitude of different interesting problems that some of them were in the process of being solved. Some of them are theoretical and they haven't been solved yet. And some of them kind of have been solved and they're iterating on, on new, improved ways of making that technology better. But really, the captivating thing, I think, is around how 
digital currency and how tokens and how tokenomics work and how they can incentivize ways of collaboration and also enable people to make money in, in, in places in the world maybe that they had seen a lot less opportunity in the past. The types of applications that people were building were kind of interesting. So I would say like a really great example of something that is concrete that people can go and kind of look at and see the possible future repercussions of that is happening like almost as we speak is this game called Axie Infinity. This is kind of like a game that put into practice a lot of the Web3 ideas. And Axie Infinity is kind of a game that is revolutionary in a few different ways. And before I talk about Axie, let me talk about Fortnite. Uh, I have a couple of kids and one of their favorite games is Fortnite. Fortnite was really also kind of revolutionary. They gave the game away for free and it was kind of like the first, I would say, big hit video game like on Nintendo or one of those platforms that people were able to get for free that blew up like and made a lot of money. So how do they make the money? Well, they enabled digital currency. They enabled uh, also skins which were clothing and stuff like that. So those two things were were huge. And I spend now a couple of hundred dollars a a year on Fortnite for my kids, where in the past we would have paid like $80 for a game and you never would have paid again, right? That was like the old way. The new way is like, oh, you're paying like every month or every year money for your kids to play these games because they- like the old way, but- They've now enabled like payments within the game. (laughs) (laughs) But what is the problem with that? Well, I wouldn't say that this is a problem. It's more of like a limitation. The limitation there is like when the kid outgrows the game, then you've now dumped $1,000 into this thing and, and nothing has come of it. Maybe they've had a great time. Maybe that's enough. That is a good thing, right? Maybe, maybe having fun is good enough. But what if instead people can actually take the value that they've put into the platform and maybe get some of their return of their investment back? Or maybe they can give it away to someone else and have them use it and have a really, really easy way to do that. So Axie Infinity kind of took those ideas of, what Fortnite has, along with some of the Web3 ideas. And they've built this game that allows players to earn in-game currency, and they can also buy it, but they can also resell that on a liquid market. So like as you play the game, you're getting paid essentially to play. And it's not a ton of money for maybe someone like a software engineer, but for people in other parts of the world, they're actually able to quit their jobs and they're making more money, like sometimes orders of magnitude more money just playing this game than they would be able to working in like a local area using their their skill set. So when I started like learning about stuff like this, this is kind of an example that, that it kind of excites me just because it's so kind of revolutionary and applying these same ideas in a bunch of different areas maybe in the future is also really exciting. And I think the idea is like having the combination of the technology to make it happen, the actual implementation that's successful, and then the order, like all of the different areas that have yet to be applied is very exciting because that means we're kind of still early like in on making these changes, but we can see that they are actually things that can be applied and they can be successful. So yeah, that's kind of like, I don't know if I went too far into a tangent there. (laughs) It's <laughs> a good example. Yeah, good example. Welcome tangent. I think a good uh, case study too for some of these ideas and also just being able to share and reuse wealth in some ways, you know. 
But, you know, kind of bringing this conversation back to the what a little bit. So first of all, I just want to say really quickly, I 100% agree with you, web developers. We are reinventing the wheel in different ways, and it is a point of huge frustration for me. Um, But that's a topic for another show. We'll have to do that another time, Nader. But to kind of bring this conversation back, so you are really, I think, a person who is very um, prominent in the educator community, and, you know, you kind of are really big on teaching and sharing your knowledge and like it's so funny you know you a fish swims a bird flies neither teaches neither gets into this crypto space neither is new to the space and the first thing neither does is like write a full guide on like full stack ethereum development and it goes crazy viral so can you tell us about that what was that like and what inspired you to do that and then yeah what's life been like after I guess taking a couple of steps back from that, um, going back to when I did decide to kind of like actually take the plunge and take a role here in this space, I had been investigating, you know, a handful of protocols and I ended up coming back. There was maybe a a half dozen or so projects that I was like, okay, I would love to work with these people based on my, you know, initial investigation and stuff. But the one that I ended up coming back to was the graph protocol, mainly because I was like, if anyone's going to hire me, I have a ton of GraphQL experience, so maybe they would be like, okay, like let's give this person a shot. So I ended up applying and you know, getting the interview. And, and throughout the interview process, I just felt like I was not good enough and I wasn't experienced enough because a lot of the stuff they were talking about was way over my head, just because it's a completely different area that I've ever you know been in again. But ultimately, I met the team. We talked about it. I learned though that almost everyone coming into this space today has zero experience in this space. Why? Mainly because it's growing so rapidly that there is no existing pool of talent to draw from. So they have to draw from the Web2 world or even just other parts of the world. Anyone that has applicable experience, community experience, other stuff. So I ended up interviewing, getting an offer and like taking the role. And it was a very, very at the time, kind of scary decision for me because I did take about half as much money as I could have taken somewhere else. And I am joining a team that literally just created this new company about a month before I started interviewing. So brand new company, less money, industry I never had been a part of. It was all brand new to me and uh, rolling the dice almost, you could say. My mom and dad like thought I was crazy. My wife is 100% like always behind me though. So at least I have that going for me. <laughs> but even after I took the offer, I was still worried about how people in my network were going to basically react to this because I've been so heavily in other communities before. This is such a big shift. But I knew that like the things that were interesting to me had to be interesting to other people because it just, how could they not be when people actually maybe understand some of this stuff? That's at least, that's where I was thinking. So the first glimpse that I got that people would be interested is just I sent out a tweet that was saying, hey, I'm writing this guide for building out full stack Ethereum app. I forgot exactly the way I I had kind of phrased it, but it got way, way more attention than I ever expected it to be. So that was my first glimpse at kind of like the demand or the interest in this type of content ever, just from my perspective in my network. Yeah, I was wondering actually if we could just double click on that a little bit. So what I find really interesting about the crypto space in general is unlike the stock markets, like the crypto markets are like 24-7 and then they're global. So it's like, I just feel like that alone just creates a massive scale. <laughs> like, you know, for anything, you know, if you're having a conference or webinar or whatever, it's like all of a sudden you, your audience just like 100 X's or 1000 X's. Like, I'm just curious, like if that's 
kind of a little bit of what you experienced as well? Like just you had a much wider group of people that were all of a sudden interested in what you had to say? Yeah, I mean, it was just definitely not expected, but it was very welcome to me, (laughs) like seeing it. And I was just because I was really worried about, okay, what if I go into this and it's not what I thought it was? Or maybe I go into this and like no one, you know, really, I'm able to not really network and, and create the relationships or keep the really keep the relationships that I had in the past with people that I really cared about, uh, you know, and I always wanted to continue building those relationships. It is a 24-7 market, but it's also an accessible market that doesn't need anyone to tell you that you can participate or you can't participate. I think one of the biggest things that is interesting to me around any revolutionary technology is that it really is something that abstracts away something that in the past needed a lot more time, effort, work, and people to kind of make work. And to me, what you're seeing now, especially if you look at stuff like decentralized finance, where you have these multi-billion dollar protocols that are doing the same work with about a dozen or two dozen people that in the past would have taken uh, orders of magnitude more people. So we're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of people within a traditional banking system to operate the types of operations, you know, combining both software and physical locations and all this other stuff that are now being done and abstracted away by teams of uh, much smaller people. So that really excited me. The fact that anyone in the entire world can create a wallet and get paid really excited me. One of the things that really excited me really uh, at first, honestly, was also the idea of stable coins. When I knew about crypto, I only knew about Bitcoin and Ethereum and that they go up and down like every day like crazy. But in reality, some of the most interesting stuff is happening in, in stable coins. And stable coins are pegged against another piece of value in the, in the actual physical world. And this is a, isn't that important for people in the U.S. whose U.S. dollar is very stable. But in other parts of the world, it's actually really, really possibly game-changing because if your currency goes up and down like ethereum goes up and down or even more let's say that um you know it goes down to to almost nothing like it it happens all the time what if instead you could be able to you know have a very easy way to get paid and and hold on to your your value in in a currency that stays the same and i think this was uh really hit home for me because i had had a family member that was visiting, or not visiting, he actually had to move to Le- uh, from Lebanon to the United States as an economic refugee because all of their businesses and even their like life savings and stuff ended up being stuck in one of the banks in Lebanon because of the financial and political crisis that they're having over there. And having a conversation with him and seeing how their, someone's life can completely be like ruined almost by the limitations in centralized authorities. A lot of it has to do with money, you know? Like, mm-hmm. people don't want to, like, sometimes say that that money is, like, that important. I mean, most logical people do, but there are people that will say, oh, like, this isn't perfect, so let's not even consider it. And then they're sitting back on their, like, half million dollar or $100,000 a year salaries saying that this solution isn't perfect yet, so let's not use it. Meanwhile, people are literally, like, having to flee their home country and lose all of their shit. Because the thing that may not be perfect would actually have saved them a a lot. So I I kind of have gone off on slightly of a tangent there. But that is some of the stuff that I would say um, interested me about the space when I decided to ultimately, you know, take make the move into it. Let me throw in another factor on the interest around this full stack Ethereum blog post, because there's a lot of facets here and 
I find it very interesting. And Mel, you, you mentioned the global aspect and the 24-hour aspect. There's another dimension here, which is that every cryptocurrency has built into it a set of fanboys slash girls. <laughs> they do. You can call them fanboys. I'm happy to be a fanboy. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I've got lady, lady parts. Yeah. So if you think about it, Nader, when you let's say you're going to put out a post like, "Hey, I'm about to write full stack blog engine on AWS Lambda." Mm-hmm. You know, like who's going to engage with that content? Who's going to promote that content? Well, you have you and your immediate friends and people, you know, sphere of influence. You have people who are legitimately trying to learn AWS, so like they're after that content mm-hmm. because they want to build a career on that. And then you have people that work for and around and are like partners with Amazon and AWS. And that's like the people who are going to amplify and be interested in that particular piece of content. That might be a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But then when you go to an Ethereum blog post, you think about who's interested in promoting that kind of content. There's an entire third party <laughs> which is the bag holders. Yeah, the people that are invested into that uh, community. The speculators. <laughs> it is what it is. And I think it's actually, you know, I think it has pros and cons because each and one of these companies who builds in this space has a mechanism by which they have quote unquote investors, mm-hmm. some who are serious and some who are just riding the waves, who are basically invested in the success of that thing. And so a lot of the amplification, a lot of the noise, good or bad, I think it's both, is because we have like incentivized parties who are almost like, it's like a, like you're, you're the fan of a football team. Like that's how much they care about these things. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Just culturally what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Those are actually fascinating points to me because it, it is fundamental to how this space actually works. It also applies to a lot of different things in the Web3 space, the idea of ownership. Being an owner of, uh, of Ethereum means you're part of, you could almost think of it as buying stock in, um, in something like Tesla, right? Or, or, or something. You want that company to win. Mm-hmm. I think one of the main differences here is that you're part owner of like some token and um, you might want that token to succeed and you might be out there like hyping it up, but you can also build like software and applications with it. You can also, you can transact in the way that you might have in the bank with the U.S. dollar, but you probably don't really go out there and try to have the U.S. dollar succeed or fail. It's not even a, a, probably an afterthought. Of course, you don't want it to fail. But like, yeah, with, with the cryptocurrency, you can kind of do all these different things with it. And it does it does provide you know incentives in good and bad ways. So like if the graph token, for example, which is one of the tokens, what is I would say the token that the graph network uses to to make it, I would say, function, People that have bought it in a speculative way might come into one of my tweets and, and say something stupid because the graph went up or down too much that week or that month, and they're like upset. So you end up having people that are, are, are either interested in the technology or they're not, and they're just speculating. And you have all these people in the same discussions in the same communities, and it's it's definitely different. Yeah, no, that that is really interesting. So like, there's so much to discuss here. There's a lot to unpack. So we're going to get into... Web3, why, why now, all that stuff um, in in the next segment. So we're going to take a little break, folks. Be right back. (laughs) 
What's up, party people? Are you ready for Core Web Vitals? Well, our friends at Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website. That's exactly why Raygun has made them into their real-time user monitoring tools. Now you can see how your Core Web Vitals scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters most to you and your team. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action quickly. Identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance level, diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Learn more at raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start at eight bucks a month. Again, raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. So you announced this full stack Ethereum post, tons of interest. You started working on it. What's been the ramifications or the pros and cons? What happened after that? And tell us the rest of the story. Yeah. So the reason I wrote the blog post uh, coming back to that is kind of like when I first took the role, I wanted to start off by understanding, you know, of course, how the stack works for building a Web3 app or building a DAP is what they call it, decentralized app. So I started, you know, immediately kind of, diving into all of this technology, all of this, all these new tools and things like that, and, and even new programming language. And the first thing I realized was that there wasn't kind of a really great place for me to go and get all this information in one place. What I ended up doing was kind of bouncing all over the place. I would go to like one YouTube video and learn one thing. I would go to some set of documentation and learn a different thing. And then I would go and try to put all these things together myself. And then I maybe found like one or two videos that tried to string them together. But are you trying to say that you centralized this information, Nader? Nah. <laughs> I centralized this information. You centralized <laughs> DAP info. Got it. <laughs> also, by the way, DAP, awesome acronym. DAP, that's like amazing. I feel like that could be in a rap song. I feel like that could be a, a product. Yeah. You know, like an exercise product. I don't know. Anyways, or a dance move, DAP. There you go, Mel. If you put DAP in a rap. Yeah, DAP in a rap. Or it could be a dance move, you know, like you're dapping. Isn't that a move? Oh, no, that's... <laughs> Isn't, I know. What's that's DAP. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Anyways, sorry, sorry, distracted. So you were looking at YouTube links and blah, everything was everywhere. Yeah, so I was like, I'm going to document essentially like my learning process and find all of the most modern tooling and show people how to put all this stuff together and build a full stack app because like for me again I was coming from the AWS Amplify serverless world and one of the things I was always interested in is kind of like putting the pieces together and building out full stack applications because to me people when they accomplish building out something that they can actually run in their browser and interact with it feels like they've not only accomplished something but they how they understand how all of this works together so I always feel that that's important to put all those things together so yeah I put together a blog post I talked to a few engineering teams in the space asked them what their their stack was and used that stack to create an example project and um, tried to implement a lot of the most um, important ideas into a single blog post so yeah put that together 
and I launched that. And it actually did so much better than uh, anything really I've ever written before in my life in that set amount of time, at least. I have stuff that has had more reads over time, but like in, in a couple of months, it had been read or watched because I ended up creating a YouTube video of it as well, well over 250,000 times. So to me, that was really awesome. It was exciting for that many people to be excited about it, but it was also pretty eye-opening that people were that interested in this stuff. So it really was altogether a great success for me. I was happy with it. It made me realize that people are hungry to learn this type of stuff and um, let's get more people out there talking about it and doing it. So um, I think since, not since, of course, like because of what I did, but like it just happened so maybe that I'm coming into this space at, at the time that other people are starting to become interested. We're starting to just see a lot more people doing stuff here in Web3, creating learning materials, creating companies, creating DAOs, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, in the last six months, it seems to have really been blowing up. There's something really magical about getting into a growing ecosystem and community early, right? So like Rust has been kind of going through this and Node had that like 12 years ago, you know, where like someone mm-hmm. made the the first CLI command parser package at Yargs and like Yargs is the official golden standard. Like no one's made a better thing that was as widely adopted since, right? It's like, it's like almost like whoever gets there first gets to kind of claim or set the tone. Well, Node first launched, it was like there was nothing. And even Ryan Dahl was like, we need packages. And so yeah. it was fertile ground for anybody to get in early and, and lay claim, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Lay claim. I think that's exactly the terminology, Jared. And so I think what's really interesting to me is that you're kind of coming in at the kind of peak tip of the spear, like best in class technology background for web development, right? Like you're coming in from Amplify and serverless and performant React applications. So I think for me, like someone with your background getting into the space and then trying to make a full stack application, I truly feel like you probably were making something that was very unique and one of a kind in many ways. Like I don't know how many people in that space have your background or in the capacity to kind of use like the latest and greatest of web tech to create a dap, right? See, I used it in a sentence, everyone. Dap, dap. <laughs> there you go. Well played. But yeah, like, I don't know, Nadir, would you say that was your experience? Yeah, and, and another thing that I think is a huge deal that maybe had a lot to do with the interest that was there was that to me, up until I would say I started following other people in the Web3 space, I felt like the communities were very siloed. Either that or I just was completely just unaware of what was going on. But I could probably point to a time late last year where my entire Twitter feed for days, weeks, or months even wouldn't even really mention anything about blockchain or crypto or Web3. And that has completely changed now. Of course, I've started following a lot of other people. But I think also what that told me was that there wasn't a lot of overlap between the communities. Like there wasn't a lot of people in the React community speaking at conferences, but also building blockchain stuff. And there wasn't vice versa people that are in this space out there being involved in the React communities, at least not a lot of that. There, There may have been some, but I didn't see a lot. So I think that being able to have a massive following of people and on different channels, including my blog and stuff, and just being able to expose them to some of these ideas was just probably a good mix of people that were interested and, you know, hadn't seen a lot of this stuff 
and me being able to kind of like be the person to show it to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's one other person that comes to mind. I'll try to find her name at some point during the show. Uh, I think Preeti something. Right. Yeah. 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 She spoke at a bunch of React conferences, I think was kind of prominent in the React space. And she transitioned over into the blockchain world. But like that, she transitioned like three years ago, four years ago. It's been a while. Another thing that's happening is that there's more opportunities now in addition to the speculation because that there's now more use cases. So we're also in a bull run for cryptocurrencies. So that's going to bring in more people, of course. But back when Ethereum first launched, you know, you had the DAO use case, right? The ICO. So you had the crowd investment use case. There really wasn't much else you could do with these things besides speculate. And then the DeFi thing started to happen. And that's decentralized finance. And I think there's a lot of snake oil in that whole deal. But maybe it's just unregulated markets. I don't know. There's some features there for lending and stuff. That's cool. Maybe. And then what happened recently, in addition to the stuff y'all are talking about, is NFTs really have become this interesting, wild new use case for these decentralized networks. And a lot of people want to mint NFTs and don't know how to. And so what do they do? They hire somebody who can do that for them, right? So there's lots of opportunities to get involved in and around building auction houses and minting platforms. And so... This is really brand new. I mean, 2020, 2021, I'm not sure how long it's been going, but the NFT thing is very real. Now, maybe it's just a fad, but it seems like a legitimate use case is bringing lots of people to the table. Yeah. The NFT is a whole different, completely new area as well. It's one of, when people are, are like asking, like, what is Web3? It's kind of hard to even explain it in um, like one sentence without sounding kind of like crazy because there's so many different things. I think fundamentally, like, why is this stuff happening? You know, why are these new ideas being able to like start to become to come to fruition like right now? I think when you kind of fundamentally look at the technological changes that have happened, there really has only been kind of like one change, right? Like when the internet first came into existence and we started seeing a lot of developers building things, a lot of the reason that we're able to come to a consensus around how to build stuff and have things that all of us understand how to use no matter where we are on the world. As for instance, like HTTP, a protocol that we can all trust that we can use and interact with without a centralized intermediary or because of protocols that people have created that are consistent that anyone can kind of use. So SSH, HTTP, TCP, all these things are part of how the internet functions. It doesn't matter where you are. And that means we have like certain types of functionality that we can program into the internet, but we have certain types of functionality that we cannot program. The two main, I would say, things that have been enabled by blockchain technology that were not available before that we had to make up for were programmable digital scarcity or AKA money and also state. So the way that we got around that in the past was building out massively complex infrastructure to support that. But when you say state, what is state? Like state as in like the state, state, like literally state, state as in. Yeah. Like state, like saving information. Yeah. 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 Just want to make sure that's the state that we're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So like when you look at the PayPal founders, if you kind of listen to how they describe creating that company, it sounded kind of like a nightmare. The way that they describe all of the, the stuff that they had to do to get this thing functioning, they basically were saying that, I forgot which founder said this, but they thought that no one would ever build anything to compete with them because of how complex it was to make that a thing. So to enable digital payments, 
all of these millions of dollars and all of these hundreds and thousands of hours of uh, work from thousands or tens of thousands of people, along with all this massively complex infrastructure had to be put in place. And even then, it's still not ideal because in order to use that, you have to be an elite person, especially at first to have used it because you couldn't have used that all around the world. And even today, there are over 2 billion people probably that can't access it because you have to have all of these things put in place to use them. Like a traditional bank account. <laughs> yeah, we have a way to actually get around that by programming our own digital scarcity. All you have to have is an internet browser. You can now receive and send payments between parties. The other thing is state. So like to, to save information, how do we do that today? Well, we have a centralized database somewhere like uh, AWS that if we don't pay the bill goes away forever and we lose all of our information. Maybe the data leaks. Maybe, I don't know, it gets hacked or maybe we just, I don't know. There's all types of stuff. Maybe it goes down because AWS has an outage in US East 1. But there are uh, a lot of things that are not ideal. And I think that with blockchain technology, we've unlocked native payments and native state. And early on with Bitcoin, it kind of just showed that these types of decentralized protocols were possible, but you couldn't really write a program in Bitcoin. And I think the reason that you're seeing it start to become a thing now is that the evolution of that technology and the improvement You've had increased transactions per second, so higher throughput per second, reduced costs. For instance, Solana is a good example of a blockchain that has fractions of a penny for a transaction. So you have all these things that are kind of happening that are now starting to become mature enough for people to build on that people are taking advantage of them. And the things that they're unleashing are also, I would say, really Interesting to people that are developers already, but they also enable people to make money. In the United States, where we can make like a couple hundred grand a year for a senior developer, we might not be that interested in this stuff. But let's say you're making 10 grand as an intermediate or senior developer somewhere else in the world, and you can partake in a protocol and increase your wage by 10x because all these projects are international and they're completely decentralized and they, they'll hire anyone anywhere. It doesn't matter where you live. It's just very, very interesting to a lot of people. So, yeah. And that's a really good segue into what I really wanted to get into in this segment, which is Web3, right? So let's break it down as much as we can. What is it? Right. What is it? What is it? And what is it not? And in particular, what is... more than one sentence. Exactly. Yeah. What is Web3 in a tweet? <laughs> and another question is really, what does Web3 have to do with blockchain or crypto, right? Specifically, if we're talking about standardized protocols. Well, the first thing that I would say beyond being able to program uh, digital money and digital state. One of the interesting things that I kind of, again, fell in love with when I started uh, looking into the graph protocol itself is this idea of serverless infrastructure protocols. And when you think of serverless, it's kind of now used more of a term to describe a type of back-end solution that abstracts away a lot of the complexity and allows you to just have an API that you can interact with. And if you look at some of the writing by some of the people that I admire the most uh, in the serverless space, they talk about this idea of a spectrum of being serverless or not serverless. So really, um, the first time I think that you start really seeing people talking about serverless with serverless functions, where you just have a function that you can call at any time, you don't have to like build it or maintain that infrastructure it just runs and it scales for you, by the way. And I think that when I joined AWS, and I started there, one of the things that interested me the most was how 
really great and interesting serverless technologies were. So when I started realizing that people were building out these decentralized infrastructure protocols and that tokens were powering them, that was really interesting to me because I'm already interested in serverless. This is just kind of a more decentralized way of, of building serverless applications. And ultimately, I think it will be a, a, a less expensive and cheaper way for people to build these serverless services. So a really great example of this is LivePeer. LivePeer is a live streaming protocol. And at the very, very least, it's around 10x cheaper than anything else that's out there. And I've, I've looked at some of the, the use cases that people are using it for, and it can be up to 100x or more cheaper than using a service from something like AWS. And the way that it works is people have the opportunity to basically run one of these nodes that does the processing of the videos on any of their infrastructure, and they make it part of the live peer network. And then someone that needs to do any type of live streaming can basically leverage that entire decentralized network, and live peer will process that however the stream actually is processed. I don't know the, the, the nitty-gritty like details around, around this, but it will basically send that processing to one of these nodes, and that node will kind of like do the work and enable that functionality using a decentralized network as opposed to a centralized service. And the way that the people get paid for running this infrastructure is in their native token. So you have these cryptocurrencies, or AKA tokens, that power these networks. The people running the infrastructure get paid in those, and the people that are consuming them can also pay in those tokens, or they can just pay in US dollars, I believe, with, with LivePeer and, and, and they can manage that processing uh, under the hood. But the way that these infrastructure protocols typically run is via some native token. And they call it typically something like a work token or um, there's other ways that people talk about this stuff. But the tokens aren't just for kind of like buying and selling on an exchange. They actually are for securing the network, for managing the network, for enabling participants within the network to kind of um, be part of what in the past would have been run on AWS, but instead you kind of have yeah. maybe a more efficient way of doing this. Yeah, it's all your operationalized costs. So how is that Web3? How is that an example of Web3 in action? Well, it's, I think it's part of Web3 because it's been enabled by cryptocurrency. Um, it's decentralized. People are able to own these tokens. And also, like if you are part of building one of these protocols, you're often allocated tokens. If you're participating in the community and you're building out infrastructure, you can be given part of these tokens as part of your work. Therefore, you're kind of like part owner as well. And, and like Jared mentioned earlier, when someone is rooting for Ethereum, instead of like having people, I would say, buying shares of AWS, instead, maybe it feels like they have a little bit more ownership uh, and they do want that thing to succeed. So you have like thousands of people that are uh, not only working to build out these protocols and these systems, but you have thousands of, of owners and, um, you know, it kind of creates a different type of incentive structure that is really interesting. And I think it's extremely powerful when it's actually done at scale. So, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So for me, the themes that I'm hearing are really decentralization, ownership, more cooperative models and more redundancy and localization and access, right? That's with the web infrastructure stuff. Yeah. So if we were going to tweet, what is Web3? What's your tweet? <laughs> my tweet is going to be, um, check out my blog post, what is Web3? Check out my blog post. Okay. <laughs> In one sentence, I would just say Web3 
is the decentralized web. All right. That doesn't explain it well enough for anyone to kind of like get it. But um, I think that the core is like de- decentralizing uh, web infrastructure, decentralizing wealth, decentralizing ownership, decentralizing opportunity. So all of these things that in the past, I think that were, were centralized, there are ways to make this a little bit more equitable and, and lowering the barrier to entry for people to participate in financial markets. Again, like DeFi, for example, let's say you're one of the 2 billion people in the world that can't open a bank account or, or, or even by law, if you're a woman, you can't open a bank account in like 50 countries, I think. Let's say that you're one of these people and you instead get on your computer and you start working with this DAO and you're starting to make money. When you want to put that money to work, well, in DeFi, you can do that. You don't have to ask any person in the world to give you the opportunity to do that. You can do that yourself. And uh, I think that's a big difference that people, again, outside of the United States and parts of Europe maybe don't take as something that that is that big of a, a groundbreaking like achievement. But it is for a lot of people. And I think that we're going to see more and more of, of those types of things in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And amen to that. Thank you so much, Nader. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers, by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. Wow. So Nader, that was very poetic. I do agree that taking a, a truly global lens where in the West, you know, we are, we have all the privilege and access in the world, but, you know, looking at countries where, I mean, I was surprised to learn 50 countries in the world, 50, like five zero, you know, a woman cannot open up a bank account. That is wild, right? Is that true? I think it's 48 or something like that, but, but yeah, by law. <laughs> it's a shame. You know, Jared, I, I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Dubai and Dubai by most standards in the Middle East, extremely liberal. But I remember growing up and I don't know if this has changed, but I think uh, you needed like your dad's permission to open up a bank account or your husband's permission to open up a bank account as a woman. So I remember that being a thing when I was growing up. Granted, like a woman could go to a nightclub and like wear a bikini and whatever. <laughs> but like, God forbid she open up a bank account, right? It's anyways. So yeah. So taking the global lens, clearly Web3 has is, I think, potentially a good catalyst for kind of democratizing access and all those other things you were saying, right? So that's really exciting. So can you share some of the things that you're excited about with Web3 and 
I'd love to also hear some of the downsides too, right? Because it's not all glory and yeah, and good. So I think it's important to one hundred percent be you know clear about this not being some like panacea or however you how you pronounce that. That there are trade offs, and I think that's one of the problems that you see in the Web three space a lot of times. That people are only acknowledging the the positives, and I think that that is actually not a good thing. And what you end up having is people that see these discussions from the outside and they think everyone is just full of crap because all they're talking about is the good stuff. So it's, yeah, it's extremely important. And, and just to clarify on the number of people or the number of countries uh, from that thing I referenced earlier, after a quick Google search, it said that uh, there are at least 72 countries in the world where women can't open a bank account. And that was written in 2019. So wow. yeah, I don't know the exact number, but yeah, it's still a problem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in addition to kind of like some of the stuff I mentioned, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. I'm excited about play to earn gaming. Um, you're starting to see a lot of people in the gaming industry that are really high up, like the head of Zynga, the head of YouTube Gaming, and a handful of others uh, publicly talk about them starting to implement these ideas in their games via NFTs, via crypto, and maybe via some other mechanisms. But the idea is there. When you see Axie Infinity go from almost nothing to over 2 million daily active users, $500 million a month in in transactions, 95% of that money sticking with the actual users, not going to the centralized platform. It's a very compelling case, I think, for a lot of people to kind of take notice. I mentioned accessible, uh, stable currencies. We talked about NFTs for a little bit. We didn't really talk about them a lot. Uh, They're very controversial. I think that the fundamental technology that empowers and enables NFTs is really interesting. I'm not the type of person that thinks that selling and buying like images on a marketplace like OpenSea, which by the way, just surpassed Etsy in volume, which means that a lot of other people are interested, but it's not maybe the most interesting thing to me for that use case. But I do think that what you're going to see is people using NFTs as ways to put real world assets on a digital marketplace and make them accessible to the world just like DeFi has. One really exciting example that I am actually diving into and trying to figure out myself and be part of if I can are people that are doing fractional real estate. So let's say um, you want to be a real estate owner in New York, but you're making like 100 grand a year or 50 grand a year. You're essentially just completely locked out. You have no way to really uh, participate in that market. What people are doing now, and it's already been done in certain parts of the world, but I think we're going to see more of it, is that people are buying a building or a real estate via either a DAO or some other type of, uh, of organization like that. And they're um, taking it and they're fractionalizing it in the form of ERC-20 tokens. They'll attach that piece of land to like an NFT and then they'll fractionalize it. And then anyone can buy and sell ownership into that piece of property on, a, on an open liquid market. So let's say you have $100, $1,000 to invest. You really think that this part of New York is going to blow up in the next two or three years based on like you living there and understanding the, the, the community. You can actually just take $100 and just buy ownership into that like in an instant and then resell it like the next day if you want to. But also anyone in the entire world can do that. And I think that that implementation of kind of like what NFTs might offer is is interesting. I also think of the idea around um, creators and people being able to buy into a community and and have some type of community ownership for a few different uh, use cases like fundraising, like people just monetizing their work and things like that are interesting. So one really good example of this is this artist 
I forgot his name, but I tweeted about him not too long ago. He's, he's actually a JavaScript developer, but he created like this generative art using JavaScript and he created an NFT collection and he sold over $3 million in NFTs over the course of like a few minutes. And he gave all of that money to the JavaScript community that wrote all of the open source libraries that he built his career upon. Now, why wouldn't he just ask people for that money uh, if you really wanted to do a fundraiser? Well, it's kind of hard to get people to hand over $3 million. But when you give them an NFT that they can put and sell on a liquid marketplace, it provides some financial incentive for both parties. Because not only are you just handing money over to this platform or to this person, but you're getting something back in return. If you had bought one of those NFTs at the time, it's probably worth maybe double of what you bought it, bought it for. It's kind of like a win-win situation. If someone wants to help and participate and buy into like helping someone else succeed. And then they're getting something that they can kind of hold on to a value out of it. And I think that, again, ownership, you're going to hear this idea of, of ownership like over and over again. That's pretty interesting to me. And, and another thing around NFTs is definitely the environmental impact. And I think we're going to talk about that when we talk about kind of the, the trade-offs and, and also get more clarity as to that, what that discussion is. Right. No, that's, <laughs> that's fascinating. Honestly, each one of those topics is its own episode. But like, so, so with that yeah. being said, what are, so like, good segue into the downsides, right? So let's talk about those downsides, right? Like, environmental impacts are huge. I mean, that's really what I think a lot of the division and drama and, you know, debate in our community is about. And so can you kind of speak to that? And I'm sure there's other down, uh, other downsides too. I mean, I, I can think of like also just, anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of areas that I'd like to highlight. And first of all, we'll start with uh, environmental impact. And that was one of the reasons that I never really also got too interested in a lot of the things happening in this space as well. When I started actually diving into what was really going on, I did realize though that there is a huge movement within the Web3 and blockchain space for environmentally friendly consensus mechanisms. So really the environmental impact all has to come down to what is the consensus mechanism for coming to an agreement around what data is actually true or not true on the on the blockchain. So the original implementation of this is something called proof of work, and that's what Bitcoin is, is built on. And just like any technology, you have improvements over time. People come up with better and improved ways of doing things. So over the course of time, people have realized that this is not sustainable. So almost all of the newer chains that have come out are using environmentally friendly consensus mechanisms like proof of uh, stake or proof of history or a combination of the two. There might, have, there might be one or two other mechanisms. But like over the course of the past few years, you've had almost all of the new blockchains and all of the smart contract chains with the exception of Ethereum actually already running on these environmentally friendly consensus mechanisms. With NFTs being the most hotly debated topic about this, there are three main chains that NFTs run on, Solana, Ethereum, and Tezos. Now, Solana and Tezos already are environmentally friendly, and uh, Ethereum is actually merging their proof-of-stake merge, which has already been kind of tested out in a couple of test networks in the next couple of months. So at that point, you're going to have almost 100% of NFTs, if not 100% of NFT transactions happening in a way that is very environmentally friendly, definitely more environmentally friendly than packing up a piece of art, putting it on a plane and, and sending it across the world. In fact, it will be more environmentally friendly to transact art digitally than physically. And there is no like if and or but about that, like if anyone tries to try to have that conversation, like it's just not logical. It'll be almost like having a database operation that is 
a little bit more than kind of like your average database operation, but it will be to that magnitude as opposed to now where you are actually spending a lot of energy to do that. So NFTs, you know, will be ultimately environmentally friendly. Really the only chain that people are going to be using that is of any significance after the merge will be Bitcoin. And I personally am not for Bitcoin. I'm kind of against Bitcoin and uh, I don't like a lot of this stuff happening in that community. I don't really like the fact that most of those people don't care about the environment. And there are a lot of other people out there like me that are feel the same way. So Yeah, yeah, right. You, you can at least, there's a choice there, right? So, um, and I'm glad to hear that the community is like rectifying that. What about like some of the downsides around like, no physical arbitrator, like when you're transacting and you need to dispute something, there's a lawyer, there's a bank, there's a government, a town or whatever, right? Like the traceability factor, like being kind of anonymous oh, yeah. is great, but then it's also, there's also like downsides too, or people's wallets get stolen and whatever else. So like, like, do you see that as kind of a downside that's of concern? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, people can lose all of their money and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. That's a huge risk for anyone transacting today and with most of these decentralized Web3 wallets. You can use something like Coinbase or um, another centralized wallet that is a little bit more, it's not more secure, it's actually less secure, but you have a little bit more centralization and maybe protection around those sorts of things. If you're the average user that don't really maybe understand how some of these wallets work and you accidentally lose your private key, for example, and you and you delete your wallet, there's no way to get your money back. If you give someone else your private key, either in a screenshot or, or however else, maybe they hack your computer, you can lose all of your money. Um, and I think that that is uh, a major concern for people that either don't know that that's the case or don't know how to mitigate that type of stuff. Even for experienced people that have been in this space for, for years, you hear people that have made mistakes and people have, uh, have been able to get their private keys and they lose their money. For example, a really uh, popular hack, social engineering hack, is someone messaging you on Discord and like, you know, trying to somehow get you to screen share and then they ask you to open your wallet and then they kind of like screenshot something there. So yeah, that, that's a big concern. I think one of the ways that people are going around mitigating that is that we're building and innovating and the user experience of how to manage that mm -hmm. and having some form of backup, usually through some type of um, multi-signature wallet, meaning that you can give access to a handful of other people and if they all get together, they can kind of unlock something or maybe you have like a social mechanism where you have like your mom and your, your cousin or your, your wife or something and all of you can get together to unlock it. I don't know if you guys know about Care Bears, but Care Bears, like, you know, when they all get together, they shoot like love out of their hearts or something and then like something magical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. Care Bear for crypto. Anyways, so that's really interesting. I'm glad that that's happening and I'm, I have no doubt that there's innovation happening there. It makes sense. But like it is a reality, like scamming, grifting, malware. That is a real thing. And, you know, and, and forget crypto. Just, you know, your grandma gets a phone call from some dude in, I don't know, Central Asia. who's like, hey, you know, grandma, like, send me a bunch of money. Like, you know, that happens, right? So, you know, how are we protecting that? I mean, there's, is there really going to be a Bitcoin police or not Bitcoin, but like a crypto police? <laughs> there's no way to recover this stuff. Right, uh, it sucks. I mean, you can basically see where it's going though because it it is all on chain right. and i think there was like some type of uh recent news where reverse engineering yeah like someone basically sent you know they hacked that 
facility in the United States a few months ago and, and they got Bitcoin and they found those people somehow. I don't know how they did that. Maybe they tried to cash some of it out. But yeah, ultimately, if you send it to an exchange, then the exchange can can kind of identify you. There's definitely drawbacks. And again, around kind of like the scammer type of thing, when you're dealing with any type of uh, money, when you're dealing with ways that people can make money, you're going to automatically get people that are in it just for the money and you're going to get scammers. You're going to have all these people all in the same discussion sometimes and, and all working for the same like goals. Like we're trying to make this thing, thing successful. Mm-hmm. These scammers are trying to just get rich off of it. So like you you have new dynamics. Right. No, that, that makes a ton of sense, right? Where there is money, there will be thieves, thievery or whatever. Yeah, that's not new, right? That's like since wealth has existed, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, we've had financial scams that have happened, I would say, forever. And really, the thing that you can think of is this analogy is kind of like we've lowered the barrier to entry for financial uh programming and financial participation. But we've also lowered the barrier to entry for s- scammers and people taking advantage of the, of those people. Mm-hmm. Right. What about privacy? That seems a concern to me. So if you're not doing anything wrong, why do you care? Well, I, maybe I don't want all my transactions on chain. Yeah. I know in, there are some privacy coins and some efforts. I'm not sure if those exist in the greater Ethereum ecosystem. But like as private citizens, you know, we don't want all of our transactions to be public on a ledger, even if they're pseudonymous. And, and you, maybe you can't mm-hmm. know who it is, but let's face it, I think law enforcement has proven they can figure out who you are with block explorers and whatnot. So is there privacy coins in Web3? Is there any chance for that to be an aspect of this where you're transacting anonymously and privately and there's no traceability? Yeah, there's a couple of privacy coins. I don't know enough about them. I haven't investigated them enough to kind of know whether I would use them or not. But I also think that not everyone needs to use like crypto or Web3. I think it's more of kind of like now we have other ways to do things and other ways for us to build applications, other ways for people to participate financially. Like if people are are still wary of the drawbacks, I would actually encourage to wait until things improve or maybe just don't use it at all. Because, yeah, if you have concerns uh, that are legitimate, uh, that you feel are concerning, like most people probably do, I would say definitely investigate those and feel and, and decide whether or not you feel like the trade-offs are worth it or they're not worth it. To me, it's really fun and interesting to kind of be able to transact so much and so quickly using these wallets and stuff. You can kind of trade between coins. You can do DeFi. You can buy NFTs. You can send money to people. In my DAO, I kind of like buy or not buy, I mint these tokens for free to get people into my DAO and send them to them for free for people that can't have gas. Yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, there's also financial, of course, incentives. But again, not everyone probably wants or or should participate in in, in this stuff. So I would say like, keep an eye, if if you're still wary about this stuff, like just keep an eye on the um, innovations and improvements that happen over the next six to 12 months and check back again with us a year from now. Maybe maybe we'll have addressed some of those and maybe we haven't, I I don't really know. But um, yeah, I, I definitely think that these concerns that people have are legitimate, and um, I would encourage people to check out my thread that I kind of wrote, out, maybe going into a little bit of this stuff in a little more detail, as well as a blog post that I wrote called Getting Into Crypto as a Developer. I have linked in that 
blog post, another thread from someone else that kind of talked about it. And I think he was a little bit more critical than I was. And I encourage you to read both of those. Yeah, no, we'll link to both of those, the, the Twitter thread on dropbacks and then the getting into crypto, as well as a bunch of your other blog posts and tutorials in the show notes. Just really quickly before we get off this topic and get into DAO, your, you know, talk about your DAO real quick, or um, is it DAO or DOA? I don't know. It's DAO, DAO. DAO, yeah, DAO. Thank you. Taoism is a religion. I don't, did you guys know that? Of course you knew that. Right? <laughs> I did know okay. that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a very beautiful religion too. This new one kind of is too, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good point, Jared. You can always count on you for the jokes, Jared. You know, you're so much funnier than I think you realize. Anyways, um, so what would you say to critics who see Web3 and crypto as a simple ploy to redistribute wealth from a few to just a different few, right? Because we, we have talked about, okay, at global scale, a lot of people are now going to have access to participate. But in reality, yeah. it's a lot of... Yeah, there's a lot of early adopter. Yeah, a lot of white male and pale people that are profiting, right? And so how is that changing the status quo? I think it's a little bit of both. You have people that are getting new opportunities to financially participate and you have other people that are taking advantage of it that are getting wealthy. Hmm. You have venture capitalists that are coming in. Yeah. Can we just invent something where we don't allow them to participate? Like, can we have like a no <laughs> allowed technology? Like, honestly, like even uh, cannabis, you know, cannabis is starting to get legalized in the United States and in North America as a whole. And they're just swooping in and, you know, corporatizing this. And it's like, they ruin everything. They, anyways, I'm sorry for the tangent. Aren't they enabling innovation though? I mean, I, I see both sides. Uh, like, come on. All right. All right. All these things that need, they need investment to exist. It is both though. Like I can't, no one can sit there and say that everything is perfect or that, um, that the majority of the benefits are going to people that are underrepresented or, or that haven't benefited in the past. But I think what is happening is that you are seeing the barrier to, to entry for some of these things that in the past were not there now being accessible. And people are participating in all different parts of the world and all different economic classes. And I would say some of the interesting things that I've seen personally, or uh, especially with the graph protocol, people that helped create and build out some of the initial infrastructure maybe a year and a half, two years ago, a lot of these people are living in parts of the world like like in Brazil and, and South America and other parts of uh, outside of the United States and Europe, where uh, from talking to them, the salary and wage, wages there are in the range of like $10,000, $5,000, $15,000 a year. But their participation in building out this network, them getting those tokens has made them literally wealthy. Even in the United States, they would be considered wealthy. Mm -hmm. And by participating and building out these protocols, they've uh, gotten that. Another example is DAOs, something we'll go into in just a moment. Yeah. In the past, you might have jumped into like an AWS Discord, and you might have gone into Stack Overflow, and you might have spent uh, a month or a year of your time helping other people build stuff. And the only thing that you really have to show for that is maybe a few points on Stack Overflow or nothing in Discord. With DAOs, you're often given tokens for your contribution. And one of the DAOs that I am finding really interesting is called Friends with Benefits. Yeah, and actually, what does DAO stand for? Oh, my God. That's so DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Oh, okay. Decentralized Autonomous. Okay, so DAO, DAP, y'all have some really fun acronyms. And, and by the way, <laughs> Friends with Benefits is like... First of all, a hilarious romantic comedy, but also very, <laughs> yeah. in, very insinuating. So tell me about this Friends with Benefits DAO. <laughs> yeah, Friends with Benefits is like a social DAO. 
and they call it like Web3 creators or, or something like that. But like to get in early, uh, you could have either helped participate and do stuff within it, or you could have bought $20 worth of tokens. And that community has kind of grown over the course of the last year. They've built out products, they've done events, and they've done a few other things. And now they're kind of doing um, their next level of growth. They've actually taken venture capital. But that $20 or that work that you had done over the course of that year is now worth a minimum of around $15,000. And it's kind of the idea of instead of like working and, and, and participating in these social channels and not really getting anything uh, out of it, you actually get money out of it. Now, some people are going to say, okay, like what – why should people get paid for doing that stuff? To me, like I make a couple of hundred grand a year. It's not that big of a deal, but it might be a big deal and it might be a huge deal to someone that makes that much an entire year for them to just get that from participating in this community, making those types of contributions that they used to do for free, but instead getting something out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, they have ownership of that community. And I think what you're going to end up seeing with some of these DAOs is that they ultimately become like the next types of like Google, Facebook types of size companies, maybe wow. not that big, but, but pretty big. And instead of it being owned by like 50% by Mark Zuckerberg or 80%, whatever, I have no idea. And then like the, the other like top 95% owned by like a small number of people, you have it now distributed between thousands of people that all worked equally to kind of like make that thing succeed. Yeah. That is interesting to me. That's fascinating. So I think we'll have to come back in a few months and do a whole show on this once those are matured a little bit. But, but just real quick uh, before we end this, what's the barrier to entry for a DAO? Some of the DAOs allow you to just join for free. Some of them ask you to mint some type of token. But either way, you have to have, for the most part, some type of token to get in. And the reason that that's the case is to kind of give ownership to everyone that's there and also provide them a way to liquidate that ownership. Mm -hmm. So for a token, you can basically sell that either on like some uh, digital exchange or maybe like an NFT would be like OpenSea mm -hmm. or some type of NFT marketplace. But yeah, most of the time you can uh, get a token or, or, or buy a few ERC-20 tokens or, or work for those tokens by participating in, in the Discord. And then you can participate in that way. For the developer DAO, which is the DAO that I created for developers, the token is completely free. All you have to do is just go to the website and mint the token. And you do have to pay the Ethereum transaction cost. When you pay that cost, you kind of get that token sent to your wallet. And really the reason that there is any type of cost at all is to kind of have some type of way to prevent civil resistance. Because if this token is going to be worth money at some point, what's to stop someone from minting all 8,000 of those for themselves? Mm. Like how do we equally distribute ownership between a large number of people? Right. Well, there there is some type of, uh, of way that we can do that with needing someone to mint. But what I've been doing is like actually setting aside a few thousand of my own dollars and just minting those and sending them to people around the world that can't afford even oh. the $20 uh, minting costs. Uh, but that way I know that that person is real and that they're kind of in it to be part of the community and they're not just in there to kind of speculate. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, now there, it's been an absolute pleasure and we've really, we've covered a lot in this hour and change. So I want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Where can people find you online? And yeah. Yeah, check out Dabit3 on Twitter. And if you're interested in the developer DAO, it's developer underscore DAO on Twitter. And dev.2, I'm also at Dabit3. 
That's my blog. Okay, yeah. Not to be confused by da- with Dapa two one or a hundred on Twitter. There's lots of, <laughs> as we know, recent. We had a fun little thread recently on like the number of Dabits on on the web. He's Dabit three. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. All right. Well, thanks everyone. It's been a fun show. We'll catch y'all next week. Take care. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Thanks for hanging with us. Hey, good news. We've just restocked the merch shop. That means you can rep Jazz Party with a comfy tee. Check it out at jazzparty.fm slash merch. Jazz Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, K-Ball sits down with Chris Ferdinandi to talk front-end infra, pre-compilation, and all that jazz. That episode will drop into your podcast feed next week. RxJS, please don't.